Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let's ask the Lord to feed us. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word does not flatter us. We pray, Lord, that you will give us hearts that don't demand to be flattered, but hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we pray to that end this morning you will help us to see the doctrine of eternity that the Apostle Paul gives us in this sixth chapter of Romans. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Um, we'll read this morning verses 19 to, to 21. Romans 6 verses 19 to 21. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the outcome of those things is death. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the, the passage begins here with a statement, I'm speaking. And you remember before, but thanks be to God, therefore, you know, there's all these words that our texts begin with that point to what comes before. This this statement, I'm speaking in human terms, so really is not pointing directly behind and saying, uh, because of this, this. It's not a logical argument here. He's stopping to explain to us why he's dealing with us, if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the Roman Christians. Why is he dealing with us the way he's dealing with us? And he says, okay, here's why I'm dealing with you in this way. I am dealing with you speaking in human terms. All right? I am speaking in human terms. We'll get to the because in a second. Now, there's a, you know, people that study the Bible exist to argue with each other about the meaning of every text, right? That's the purpose of scholarship is to to settle on a meaning. And often they're more precise in the meaning of the text than it seems to me they should be. I don't think we read as precisely as New Testament and Old Testament scholars argue. And so here what they say is that we have to choose here when we look at human terms, okay? I am speaking in human terms. And we have to make a choice between whether the human terms he's speaking of are the actual language, the actual images and and metaphors and the language of slavery, the, the intellectual communication method, 
I'm speaking in human terms. I'm, I'm using these words, these phrases, this sort of argument. Why? Well, because of the weak. Or, I'm speaking in human terms is a moral content issue instead of an intellectual issue. In other words, I'm, I'm getting down, I, I'm getting down in, in, the, uh, in the ditch with you. I'm, I'm dealing with you on a level where you're living. You shouldn't be, but I have to speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, I don't think you should choose between one or the other. I think that both are contained. It is true, and you'll find uh, uh, Bible students saying that the language of slavery is what? You know, there's so much that we're so... (laughs) One of the ironies of living today is how utterly degraded our national discourse is. This is utterly degraded. And then you come in the church and we're so prissy, (laughs) you know? Everybody's just so uptight about what the pastor might say, you know? And then you open up any computer, any, any publication, and it's utterly degraded. Do you understand? The things that are matter-of-factly shown as images and done without comment, as if this is normalcy, right? And... And so, when it comes to the language of slavery here, you can just imagine what the Bible students say. Well, slavery is so degraded. Slavery is so violent. Slavery is such an awful, awful parallel to make in any connection with godliness. Now listen. When the Apostle Paul uses the image of slavery with us, it is not demeaning to us to be God's slaves. Okay? And so we don't have to understand this explanation as being an indication that the Apostle Paul is using a second best form of argument because really we're much better than slaves. I mean, think about how we would view our relationship with God. We would never choose in the post-Civil War era, in the post-colonial era, to describe anything good as slavery. We can barely handle the fact that he speaks of our former life as slavery. Do you understand this? We just are so full of condemnations of slavery. And so, of course, Bible scholars are saying, well, you know, this language of slavery is really sort of demeaning. I mean, the connotations and denotations that it brings to us are just really not Salutary! I mean, you get it? Why couldn't the Apostle Paul have spoken to us of how we now, you know, you were slaves back then. Okay, I'm okay with you talking about me being a slave of the evil one back then. That's okay, because it was pretty degraded. But why couldn't he speak of what? What he is trying to do here is get us to move from the degraded position of being a slave of the evil one to the infinitely exalted position of being a slave of righteousness.
And here we are, just so, what would I say, so discombobulated that he would lower himself to making such an argument with us. And so we look at this text and we say, I'm speaking in human terms because, and it's like, yeah, you know, Paul, I was expecting something just a little bit better from you. You know, but okay, you're speaking to me in human terms because of the weakness of my flesh. But I've got it now. I guess I needed rhetoric of slavery. I guess I needed that image. But can we move on? You feel this? And so the commentators are saying it's intellectual. He has to use language that's sub spiritual. They don't say that, but they say sub-heavenly. But listen, people, so much of the way that we rebel against God today is by rebelling against the rhetoric that he has in his word. And I hope you realize every time you open the Bible that nobody today would ever say it the way God says it. I hope you realize that there is no pastor that speaks like the Apostle Paul today. None. Not one. Certainly not me. And so if we reject the language that God uses with us, and we sort of have a condescending attitude, as as if, well, back then in the brutal Roman Empire, they might have needed something like this, but certainly in our infinitely advanced and sophisticated age, we don't need anything like this. And I notice this with Jesus. I notice this with Jesus in the end of Matthew, where I was saying to somebody this last week, I think it was Jody, I was saying to Jody, you know, I, I simply don't hear anybody going through the end of Matthew between the triumphal entry and Good Friday showing what Jesus actually said as the explanation for the crucifixion. I don't hear anybody talking about it, anybody writing about it. I've never heard anything about it. And so you have people showing up on Palm Sunday and the little children do the palm fronds, which I love. All right? And then some people show up for Good Friday, which is kind of a downer, really, but an upper. You know, I speak in human terms. Okay, and then Easter. And what happened to the woe sayings of Jesus? What happened to him carefully orchestrating his murder by every single thing he said in between the triumphal entry and his crucifixion? Jesus was absolutely in control of the livid fury of all the religious leaders of his time. Are you with me? And so, where's that rhetoric in our hearts? I love Jesus during that week. Because why? Well, because he tells all the other religious leaders how awful they am, and that makes me feel better. I mean, come on. No. It's because Jesus perfectly diagnoses my own wicked heart as a spiritual leader. That's why. Do you all get this? And so we have to reclaim the actual words and phrases and the actual images and metaphors and the intensity of the arguments. We have to reclaim the negative in the church. 
because you will not survive spiritually if you don't submit to the negatives of your father and your mother and your brother and sister and your pastors and elders and Titus two women. If you will not submit yourself to their no's, don't claim their yeses. Don't become dependent and addicted to flowery language about things that are of, of excrement and decay and shame. You need to hear the scripture that says, like a dog returning to its vomit. I mean, is this, well, there he goes again, but it's James, but he's speaking in human terms. Oh my goodness, like a dog returning to its vomit. <laughs> you know? No, it was Peter, isn't it? Is it James or Peter? Oh, come on. Peter, thank you. You knew it, but you didn't want to be proud, right? Well, that was because, which is it? <laughs> Don't you have a great leader here? <laughs> you, know, you have such confidence in me. I'm sorry. I think. Well, it's either, huh? You sure? Because you know it by heart, right? Now listen. I want to encourage you that if you will give yourself to the no's, you will get the yeses out of all proportion to what you would get them if you rejected the no's. So do not stiffen your backs when God deals with us rigorously. You know, I was talking to a guy in the pastor's college this week, and I was intense with him. No, you're going to do it. You are going to do it. You know, he was being told to do something. And, you know, this is a... And so it's hesitant doing this because he's big, and he's older, and he's a real man. You know, and it was like he was not going to do it. And I, yes, you are going to do it, you know. And at one point I stopped him and I said, if you were on the soccer field, the football field, okay, and, and you were told, stop, do it over, stop, do it over, stop, do it over, w- would you think that the coach was abusing his privileges to say that to you? And what I, the reason I'm bringing this up is that we have an expectation of being told no, of being aware of our bodies in a doctor's office, of being rebuked and put through the, the reps again and again and again in athletics. We have an expectation of an unbelievable number of things that are rigorous and hard to go through in other spheres of life, but when it comes to spiritual things, We don't want to be dealt with the way the Apostle Paul is dealing with us here. Do you understand that? It's just like, Paul, I don't need this. I have the joy of of glorifying God, and and, and my joy is glorifying him, and and that's how I am. (laughs) You know? But hey, hey, guess what? If that's how you say you are, you're a liar. Because nobody lives outside of the necessity of God's no and of him shaming us. Does this make sense to you? So please, don't 
don't think that you're above the way the Apostle Paul deals with us. Love him for it. I mean, honestly. Oh. So I've been trying to watch some of the, the dance, you know. And Jim is, you know, Izzo, he, go, he goes off on a player. And A.J. Guyton, who's an old Indiana player, you've got to read what Guyton says about it. He says, dude, this guy loves us, and that's why he's rebuking us. Back off! But all of America's having a hissy fit because you have a man, and he's a basketball coach who is in the face of a player who Guyton says, I was watching him, and I knew what was coming with Izzo, his coach. I knew it was going to happen. You know, because the guy was being a lazy dog. And that's the way we are spiritually. And God often wakes us up with very, very difficult statements, phrases, images, metaphors, uh, run-on sentences. You get to, uh, to the end of Peter. And I'm telling you, no, I guess it's Jude. I always get those little things. But I mean, there is a thing where I don't know that there's any more intense statement of Scripture than where it describes the false believers that are inside the church of Jesus Christ. It is unbelievable. You know, blots on your love feasts. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of what? Well, because of the weakness of your flesh. And so are we able to look each other in the eye and say, you know, I have a weakness in my flesh. (laughs) To which you respond, you know, so do I. Isn't that a relief? I have a weakness in my flesh. So do I. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity. And it's like, oh no. (laughs) Here we go again. Slaves to impurity. Well, does that describe you before it was... uh, (laughs) before, Before you began enjoying the glory of God? Hmm? that you presented your members? What are members? Well, we are all members of one body. Some members have more dignity than others. I'm speaking to you in human terms. Members are more than this, but they start out by being parts of our body. If I may speak to you in human terms. After all, it's the language of Scripture here. And he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity. Now, you all with me? This is who we were. But unfortunately, this is who we are. Because otherwise, he wouldn't be going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth like he's been doing week after week. And so he's saying... For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Now, what is lawlessness? Well, lawlessness is refusing 
to obey the character of God. At its essence, that's what lawlessness is. Lawlessness is refusing to be holy as he is holy. It is refusing to become conformed to the image of God. That's lawlessness. And so, look, if you look at the Ten Commandments, what they show us is the character of God. But God doesn't have character the way we do because every one of God's character traits we call what? Perfections. And so the Ten Commandments are God's perfections. Okay? And what he says is, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. You gave the parts of your body to breaking the character of God. Okay? Okay? And then he says this, resulting in further lawlessness. In other words, it has a snowball effect, right? We all see this. It's very easy to understand what he's saying here. When we give ourselves to lawlessness, and so you look at people that look at strange flesh on their computers, and you see that their practice of looking at strange flesh never stays in equilibrium, but it always becomes further degraded. Okay? And so we give our members of our bodies to lawlessness, and this creates an increase in lawlessness. Sin is never under your control. Okay? When you give yourself to lawlessness, it will result in greater lawlessness. If you have a line that you think you won't cross because you're a principled man in your sin, that line is controlled by the evil one, and he will cause you to cross it. Don't ever think that you can control sin. It controls you. And that's what it's saying here, resulting in further lawlessness. This is us in the past. He says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Doesn't sound really dignified to talk about being a slave of righteousness, does it? <laughs> you know? It's, oh, but God's glori- most glorified when I most enjoy him. You know? Which is true. But here it says, now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And then he says, resulting in sanctification. In other words, the opposite of resulting in greater lawlessness is resulting in greater holiness. We become more like God. That's what it means to be godly. Now, let me ask you, is this passage of scripture helpful to us today? Is it helpful to us today? Do we need this passage of scripture today? Is, let me ask you another question. Is this passage of scripture cheerful enough for us today? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, is this the kind of thing that you signed up for when you came to church here? Or, let me ask you this, would you like a helpful thought for the week? Well, okay, here it is. Helpful thought for the week. 
as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further law. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That's your helpful thought for the week. For, so in other words, this follows on what came before. For, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, um, this is an expression that is tongue-in-cheek. It's sarcastic. It's, it's, uh, it's not precisely what it looks. Do you see this? You were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> and you're going, wait a second. You know, why would you tell me that I was free, you know? Why would you use the positive word free in connection with righteousness, you know? Why would I want to be free of righteousness? And what he's showing you here is that when you were a slave of sin, you actually wanted to be free from righteousness. (laughs) In other words, sin is enjoyable. Sin is pleasurable. And when we're sinning, we want to be free of righteousness. And you all know this is true because you experience it constantly. You know, you know that you should apologize. And so, you know, you're going into the apology and you've decided you're going to do the right thing. And you're just going to apologize. And so you say, honey, uh, I want you to know that you're my husband. And and therefore, it, it is true that the Bible says that I should that I should do what you asked me to do. And I'm sorry I didn't, but do you always have to ask me right before dinner, don't you know I'm busy? You know what I'm saying? You know, did you hear the word but? That's the key word. If what she did was sin, that word but is a tell, you know, in poker, and it's pointing to the fact that she wants to be free with regard to righteousness. I always think of Sarah being told by Abraham to go kill the calf and fix dinner. You know, because I think it's such an incidental picture of the relationship of husband and wife in Scripture. You know, go... go Go make a banquet for these people. And I think, did Sarah want to make a banquet for these people? She'd never seen them before. They just wander in off the desert, you know? And who were they? And this is the level that we live our lives on. Our husband says, would you fix a a banquet for my guests who just showed up? This was my mother-in-law's perpetual life. My father was constantly, and father-in-law was constantly inviting people on the spur of the moment into their house. And she never complained, and she cooked for whomever came in. That's my dad speaking. And so when it comes to the relationships that are most intimate with us of marriage and fathers and mothers and everything, It is very, very difficult for us 
to want to be slaves in regard to righteousness. But it takes on a very, very clear image when I speak of slavery when it comes to the relationship of a husband and wife and parents and children. Do you recognize that when God says, honor your father and mother, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you're with me? Mm-hmm, young man? Mm-hmm. That when God says, honor your father and mother, God is relegating you, okay, like the Premier League, to a lower position than your father and mother. And if you are godly, their desire will be your command. Yeah, you, you say, oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, that's so demeaning. Okay, so here's my brother Joe. I'm not going to be able to find it. Yeah, here it is. So my brother Joe died at 19. He was writing his girlfriend who had moved to California. And he was in college. And he was writing a short thing. You can go online at Bailey Blog and read the whole thing. But he was writing a short thing, trying to explain to her. She knew my parents, but trying to explain to her how much he trusted his father and mother. And it's just the most beautiful statement of intimacy and love between a son and his parents. I, <laughs> it was very depressing to come after him because there was just no way I was going to even bear the slightest resemblance to my godly brother. And I don't say this whining. I just say it as an, an acknowledged fact. But here... He comes to the end of this letter that he writes his girlfriend, and he says this. He says that his trust for dad and mud, we called her mud, he said, my trust for father and mother, my trust for dad and mud, okay, is so complete that, and this is how it ends, these are the final words, quote, their wish... Their wish is literally my command, unquote. Now, is that slavery? Is that demeaning? Or is that godly? And, you, you know, you're going to say, well, you know, what if they told him to commit suicide? And I say, oh, please, can we not sacrifice the normal on the altar of the abnormal. Doesn't the Bible say honor your father and mother? Can you imagine the joy of my father knowing that for him and his wife that their wish was literally my brother Joseph's command. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members 
In other words, let's get real nitty-gritty about this. The parts of your body, your members, present them as slaves to righteousness. And the fruit of presenting your members as slaves to righteousness is what? Sanctification. The fruit of presenting your members to evil is what? Further lawlessness. The fruit of presenting your members as slaves to God is sanctification. And then he says this. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And we all go, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, right? I mean, in other words, we'll agree with him, but it's kind of like a, a, a sort of um, shameful admission. You were free with regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving? <coughs> from the things of which you are now ashamed. (laughs) For the outcome of those things is death. Listen, are we ashamed of death? Yeah. Death is shameful. A body without a spirit is very off-putting, very disconcerting, very uncomfortable. And so he ends up with the ultimate shame, which is death. The outcome of this is death. And it's not just death physically, it's death eternally. It's hell. It's damnation in hell. The outcome of living a lawless life is more lawlessness and then shame and then death. Okay? Now, of course, I'm going to make a comment about him saying that these are the things of which we are now ashamed. Because shame is something that uh, we, you have to keep your eye on the ball with shame. Shame is like authority. There is no loss of authority. There is a, a, a 27th law of thermodynamics which says that you can't get rid of any authority. It just transfers from one place to another, and so you have to keep your eye on the ball. And all the authority of the church and the home is being transferred to the state today. The state is taking over. You go into courts today, and you listen to what's being adjudicated in courts today, and everything in there has to do with things that should have been handled by the home and the church. Now, I'm exaggerating. Contract law, yeah, that should be in the courts. Serious felonies, but so much of it today is is family court. Arguing about which church the children can go to. Okay? It's mind-boggling. And this is normal in America today. And so authority is never decreased in the church and the home without being increased with the state because there is a a law of physics (laughs) that you can't diminish authority. It just gets, what's the word, shoveled or shifted. Thank you. (laughs) Um, From one place. Now, this is the same with shame. God has written shame into the universe. 
And the only question is whether we will live by God's definition of shame or whether we will take the world's counterfeit of shame. And so when it comes to sexual sin today, the world is shameless. And it's talking about and, and, and writing about and, and having in movies the most degraded sexual sins. So if a Christian in a theater watching a perversion on screen were to say, ugh, just ugh, you know, like that shoe company in Australia, ugh. What would happen is the entire theater would shame that Christian for shaming the perversion. Do you understand this? And this is what you have to keep your eye on today. There is no absence of shame in America today. It is everywhere being used by the forces of evil. And none of God's people have any faith to use it themselves. And that's a large part of our testimony, is treating as shameful the things that should be shameful. But we don't have faith for it, and so we go on with the world, and we sort of get abashed and get red in the face and embarrassed when... uh, Something's going on having to do with a sexual perversion, and, and we know that we don't want to hear about it, and we, know our, we don't want our children to hear about it. But on the other hand, if we did anything to oppose it, then it would be so embarrassing. And I'd be ashamed in front of the world because they'd call me a hater, and they'd think I'm ignorant because people that don't approve of sexual perversion generally don't have college degrees. As a matter of fact, most of them don't even have high school degrees. And that's shameful. Come on, people. Be responsive when I preach to you. Help me. Help me. You all have been through this. You all have known that you should show, demonstrate in some way the shame of what is being portrayed and spoken of and pictured in front of you and your children. But instead of feeling shame at what God condemns, you feel shame at God condemning it. And so you're silent and you're just worried that your children will disapprove, will disapprove of you. We all live for the approval of our children. Come on. Be, 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 be honest. And so I'm going to tell you a little story. You've heard it before, but I'm going to tell it again because it illustrates this. I was over at the IU Auditorium, and Joe and Eleanor Rice were there with uh, Jessica and Jessica's best friend, Michael, my daughter, and my wife, Mary Lee, and me and... Who else was there? That was it. Okay. And Joe and Eleanor were over here. This is Joe and Eleanor, by the way. And we had really lousy seats way up in the back of the auditorium. And Joe at that time was not coming to church. No, he wasn't. Because I remember going through my mind. Ugh. And Joe is a military man. He was a captain in the Navy. And Joe understands authority. And Joe understands truth. But he wasn't coming to church. 
And so here I was. By the way, this is a different timer that never goes off, and I'm now six seconds over my time limit. <laughs> I just want you to know I'll be done in a second. And so Joe was down there, and then Jessica, and Jessica was sort of in play, but she was friends with Michael. And then there's my teenage daughter, Michael. And we're at a concert, right? And, and of course my wife, who is certainly not my fan club, you know, Michael, uh, my wife doesn't spend her life cheerleading me, right? She's very helpful. And so they get up and they sing this song, this, this, this group that we went to hear, this musical group. And they get up and they sing this song, which is all about uh, every form of, uh, of, of social justice, you know, racism and all this stuff, and on and on and on and on and on. It's just, they're righteous and they're, they're showing their righteousness to everybody listening as they sing their song. And I'm sitting there just waiting for them to add homosexuality to the list of their righteousness because they approve of it, right? And my stomach is getting tight because I'm sitting next to Eleanor, who, if there's anybody who has more objective knowledge of truth than Joe, it is his wife. And she's my wife's friend. And then there's Jessica. And then there's Michael, my daughter. And then there's my wife. I don't know if it's me. No, actually, Jessica and Michael were there. And by God's kindness, we got through the song, and they didn't mention homosexuality. At the end of the song, I turned to Mary Lee, and I said, I thought they were, and she said, I thought the same thing. Then they start their next song. And the next song, the entire song, was presenting Matthew Shepard, the homosexual who was murdered, presenting him as Jesus Christ, and that his righteousness was his sexual perversion. That was the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it was all Christological. It was all about Jesus being Matthew Shepard. And I'm sitting there on full earth. But I have my daughter here, and I got Jessica there. I got (laughs) Mary Lee here. And then I've got Joe and Eleanor. And I think... I I can't be silent, but do you all understand why I wanted to be silent? Everybody there with me, okay? And, And, but as the song goes on, I know that I must witness to the truth of God because of Joe, if no other reason. I am not going to lose this opportunity to testify to Joe that I am not a religious leader that I'm a warm body who loves Jesus and fears him. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I got two choices. It was very clear to me there were only two choices. One choice was to get up and leave, right? And then I thought, yeah, but if I get up and leave, then, then Jessica and, and Michael are going to be really irritated because the minute I stand up, Joe's going to be right behind me, and he would have been too, you know. And then Eleanor's going to have to leave, and then Mary Lee will have to leave, and then my kids are going to have to leave, and it's like, oh, no. I know Joe would be with me, but I'm not sure any of the women would be. And then I think, well, son, your alternative is to boo. Either leave or boo. 
<laughs> Those are the only options you have, you know. So the song is over, and I chose the lesser path. And I put up my hand. I went, boo! I thought if I was going to boo, it was going to be a good boo-boo. And I just let it out. Now, listen, you all know, because you've all been there, you all know what I'm talking about. Okay? And you all know that the reason you would never boo is, well, yeah, you're not a pastor. Pastors have to do things other people don't have to do, right? But the other reason you wouldn't boo is you know that immediately that entire auditorium would do what? It would turn around and it would shame you. But do you know something interesting? Not one person in that auditorium shamed me. Not one. Nobody even turned around and gave me a disapproving look. It was mind-boggling. Peter, Paul, and Mary didn't yell at me. There was not even a response from the stage. It was like everybody there knew God and knew his holiness, and it was almost as if everybody was relieved that I did it. I kid you not. Except one person, (laughs) and that was my wife, who the second I let the boo out of my mouth, bam, like that, she gave me the old elbow. Now think about this. Isn't this our life? You know? Even Eleanor didn't tell me what she thought of me. Eleanor's looking up like this, you know, when is he going to stop? (laughs) (laughs) Most of my life, that would have resulted in a terrible fight with my wife. I would have sat there and steamed that she was punishing me for something that was so hard for me to do. But that night, I just looked at her, and I just thought to myself, I love her. And so I leaned over, and I whispered it in her ear. I said, honey, arm around her. I said, honey, you should be so thankful you have me as your husband. And I smiled at her, (laughs) you know. And don't judge me for that. That was kindness and love on my part, you know. I thought, you should be happy because you need me. I need to do that, all right? You understand this, people. Now listen, it says of the things that you were formally ashamed. Did you hear that? Did you hear it? And what this indicates to you is that central to the process of sanctification is that you grow more and more aware of the shame of your sin. And that sanctification can actually be described as becoming more ashamed of your former and present life in the areas it doesn't conform to God. In other words, sanctification and shame are just like this. Recover your shame at your former way of life. Recover it because shame is a wonderful way to avoid sinning. Okay? 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, and we pray that you will help our hearts to be soft and tender when your word is preached, that we will not be cynical, that we will not be hard-hearted, but that your Holy Spirit will be pleased to work in us through it. Give us a recovery of shame, Father. Help us not to be ashamed at Jesus and his words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.